Well, uh, if you're just joining us today, we're doing a summer sermon series on uh, the Ten Commandments, and today we come to the Sixth Commandment, which, as we looked at in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, is very simple. In fact, in the Hebrew, uh, it's just two words, uh, lo, rock, soth, I think is how you say it, rock, sock, or something like that. But it's just no murder, right? No murder. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, sweet, all right, sweet. Finally, one of these commandments I don't have to worry about, right? This is certainly not going to apply to me. This one, I've got, like, check. Now, here's why I know that you're thinking that, because I was meeting with somebody this week for breakfast, and he literally said it to me. He's like, what's this, what are we talking about? I was like, oh, do not kill. He's like, sweet, sweet, I don't do that, right? I have got this. And uh, I found, actually, I have that going on in here, too, uh, because as I worked through this uh, sermon this week, I kept using the second person pronouns, you. I wouldn't talk about me or us or I, right? And so it, it even snuck up on me this morning. I was like, the, I, I, the way I write these is I'll, I'll start working on it like on a Wednesday, and then I'll sit, sit, get away from it, and I'll pick it back up on Friday morning, and then I'll get back up on Saturday morning, I mean, Sunday morning and do like a last run through. So I t- kind of take three cracks at it. And, and uh, all three, I had to go back and go, oh, wait, no, I, I we, I'm, I'm in this too. Um, because all of us want to think, well, this is, we got this, we're good. Uh, but before we kind of let ourselves off the hook of the sixth commandment, we need to pay attention to how Jesus applied it to us. And uh, he talks about it in Matthew 5, and he says this, Matthew 5, 21 and 22. You've heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. And so what I want us to think about this morning as we look at the sixth commandment is this. Why did Jesus go this direction with it? Right? Why, did, why did he go here with this commandment? not to murder. And I think as we look at it, we'll see he went this direction with it for the same reason his father did. Um, you know, if you think about the Ten Commandments, uh, the first four are vertical, okay? They're, 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 they're governing our relationship with God. The fifth is kind of diagonal, right? It's, it's governing your relationship with the people God's put in authority over you here on earth, your parents, your elders, the state, that kind of stuff. Six through ten are horizontal. They're, they're governing our relationships with each other. And the first place that God wants to start when he wants to direct us how to relate to one another is here. Exodus twenty thirteen. do not murder. Now, why would God start there, right? Doesn't that seem like obvious? Like, well, duh, don't. And the reason is because that's where we started, Right? That's where we started. Um, after humanity fell into sin and Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden, the very first set of siblings in all of human history, Cain and Abel, resulted in the very first murder in human history. We read about it in Genesis 4, 1-12, through 12, where we read this. The man was intimate with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, I have made a male child with the Lord's help. 
She also gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flocks and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious, and he looked despondent. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you furious, and why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's guardian? Then he said, What have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground, so now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. So here's what I want us to think about today. How did this happen? How did the first child born to humans end up killing his younger brother? I think we get a hint on how it happened in verse 1. Look at what Eve said in response to Cain's birth. She said, I have made a male child with the Lord's help. Now, why would that be significant to her? Why would she make a big deal out of it being male? Why not just, I've made a child with the Lord's help? Well, to understand why Eve was so excited, you need to remember when God first proclaimed the gospel to Adam and Eve right after they fell. And when he was talking with the serpent, he made this promise in Genesis 3.15. I'll put hostility between you, Satan, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And so I think it's reasonable for us to believe that Eve thought, sweet, God has given me this male child who is going to deliver us and our family from the disaster we unleashed when we ate the forbidden fruit. Here is the Messiah. Here's the one, the promised one, the male child that's going to deliver us from the evil one. And here's what's tricky about that, right? It was possible, right? Certainly possible. All of us kind of want heaven now. We want God on our own timeline. And I think Cain kind of bought into it, right? Because he was the firstborn, and he was a high achiever, right? He, he grew up first. He farmed first. His descendants invented all kinds of things, like music and architecture and civilization. I mean, he was super bright. And so in the face of that, he comes up with a new first. And the, the first that he comes up with is, I think I'm going to worship by God by giving him an offering. I think that's what I'll do. And so, verse 2, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel became the shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. And in the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. Abel, typical younger brother, tags along, says, okay, well, I'll present an offering too. 
some of the firstborn of his flocks and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. And at this moment, Cain was furious. And he looked despondent. Which is why Jesus went this direction in Matthew 5.22. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 5.22. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister is subject to judgment. Well, why? Why does our anger require judgment? And the answer is because anger isn't intrinsically sinful. In Ephesians 4.26, Paul says, be angry and do not sin, right? In a broken and fallen world, there are some things that should make you angry like sickness, death, injustice, sin, evil. If it doesn't make you angry, something is wrong with you, right? You're dull, you're, you're dim, you're, you're darkened. If, if your heart doesn't respond in anger to certain things, Jesus got angry, right? Jesus got furious when he showed up in the temple and the people of God had turned a section of the temple that was supposed to be the house of prayer for all nations into a flea market for greedy people, right? He got furious about that. And so anger isn't intrinsically sinful. Why not? Well, because anger is fuel. It's emotional fuel, God-given, to overcome a blocked goal, right? When we have a goal and our goal gets blocked, anger's energy, right? It's, it's like gasoline, to get us up and over the goal, uh, to the block to the goal. So the sinfulness or the righteousness of your anger is determined by the goal, right? If your goal is the glory of God and the good of your neighbor, then you're experiencing righteous anger. If the, you, the goal is yourself, um, then you're experiencing unrighteous anger. Cain's anger occurred because he wanted his offering to be accepted. His goal was to be accepted, right? But now, if his goal had been, I want my offering to be accepted because I really want to glorify God, when God didn't regard his offering, Cain's anger would have been directed at himself. He would have been like, dang it, I should have listened better. I should have, I should have taken more time to really think about what God wants. I should have asked him. What kind of offering does he desire? If, however, Cain's goal is to please himself by earning God's favor, when God doesn't regard his offering, Cain's anger is going to be directed at God. And he's going to be like, you're not giving me what I deserve. Heck, I even came up with this offering idea. Why aren't you responding to me the way I want you to? Consequently, Cain's anger becomes a gateway for temptation. Verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, why are you furious? And why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. The same thing can happen to us. America has an anger problem. In 2021, America ranked 21st out of 202 countries in firearm-related deaths per 100,000 people. 
In 2021, there were 48,830 total gun deaths, reflecting a 23% increase since 2019. The homicide rate in the U.S. is 7.5 times higher than the homicide rate in other high-income countries combined. The overall firearm death rate is 11.4 times higher in the U.S. than other high-income countries. So why is our country so violent? Why are we so angry? Why are we so easily angered? The answer may surprise you. It's because we're the land of opportunity. Jesus' younger brother, James, explains the root of murder this way in James 4, 1 through 3. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. See, we as a culture proclaim to people day after day that you have a right to be whatever you want to be. You have a right to whatever you think will make you happy. You do you. And so, consequently, all of us grow up wanting something so that we can spend it on our pleasures. And every day, we see people who have it. Someone else has it. And so we're tempted to destroy them relationally or vocationally or verbally or politically or physically when we can't get what we want. This is why we do this weird thing in our culture where we'll put somebody on a pedestal specifically to knock them off of it again. Right? That's kind of what we do. We'll raise them up and knock them down. Uh, you'll watch us. We'll do this with, you'll see us do it with Lionel Messi. Right? Well, it's what's going to happen. He'll be like, oh, he's the greatest. Isn't he so great for MLS? And then someone's going to come out with some story about him being a jerk or entitled or whatever, and everybody's going to turn on him because we've got this weird thing going on. And so what does this look like for you? What do you desire? Maybe you desire freedom from guilt, and you have a manipulative family member that always makes you feel guilty. Maybe it's an aunt or a sibling or your mom or your grandma. And so what do you do? Well, you cut them out of your life. Oh, that's going to voicemail, right? Nope. Oh, unavailable, right? Click. That's what we do. Or maybe you desire for sex with no strings attached, and yet the person you hooked up with last week won't stop texting you, and so what do you do? You ghost them. Or maybe you desire power at work and your teammate gets credit that you believe you and your team deserve. And so what do you do? Well, that person's dead to me. In Cain's case, he desired the better life of blessing that his younger brother was experiencing without having to humble himself and ask his younger brother to disciple him. Abel knew God better than Cain did. Cain had a messianic complex. 
And so all Cain had to do was humble himself and ask Abel to tell him what he had discovered about the heart of God and ask this question, I wonder why God prefers sacrificed lambs to sacrifice vegetables. Maybe he's up to something. Maybe there's something more going on here with him than I know. And so God warns him that he's ripe for temptation. First it begins, verse 4, the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering, right? This isn't a rejection, this is a preference. God's like, I prefer this to this. Cain took it as a rejection because he has wounded pride, right? That's what hurt him, his wounded pride. Verse 5, Cain was furious and looked despondent. And so God starts asking him questions. The Lord said to Cain, why are you furious? Why do you look despondent? If you do what's right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, and you must rule over it. Now, Cain should have sat with those questions. He should have examined his anger and said, why am I so furious? And he might have discovered, oh, I'm furious because mom and I thought that I was like the Savior. But that's like the same temptation they faced to the begin with. Like, you know, you can be like God. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm being played here. But he didn't. Instead, he gave in to self-pity because he couldn't make God do what he wanted to while holding on to his self-righteousness, which leads to despondency. Despondency is anger turned inward. It's when your goal is blocked and the thing between you and your goal is insurmountable. You can't get past it. You despair. You despond. You turn inward in self-pity and resignation. It's cold anger. It's hard-heartedness. Lewis warns us about how dangerous this is for us. He says this, Whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good, above all, that we're better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we're being acted on not by God, but by the devil. Cain was being acted on by the evil one, but he didn't know it. And so God began to ask him questions because God knew who Cain was dealing with. Jesus describes Cain's enemy this way in John 8, 44. He says, you are of the, your father the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. You see, here's what's going on. Uh, from the moment human, humanity was made in the image of God... Satan hated it, and he couldn't attack the creator. He was too weak to do that. He doesn't have the power of life and death. If he did, we wouldn't even be here. So instead, he has to tempt us to kill one another. He has to seduce us into hating one another the way he does, and he does it by lying to us and telling us we're something when we're not. 
and puffing up our pride, puffing up our sense of entitlement, our bitterness, our resentment, so that we end up canceling one another. That's what we do. And this is why Jesus applied the sixth commandment to us the way he did. Let's look again at Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. So here's the diagnostic question Jesus wants us to sit with. Whenever you find yourself experiencing anger, does it lead you to contempt for other people? Do you ever find yourself calling someone an idiot when you're driving, when you're on a work call, when you're watching a news feed? How does your time with your extended family go? Ever find yourself thinking one of your family members is an idiot due to their political views or their truth sources? How about during COVID? Ever find yourself incredulous with people who thought differently than you about vaccines or masks or quarantines? I certainly did. Because if COVID exposed anything about me, It's that I think that people around me who do not agree with me theologically or politically or medically or practically are idiots, right? That's what I saw in my own heart. And here's how I discovered it. It was a painful process. I was confused, right? As I was leading the church and I was like, all right, I'm just telling people that Q is lying to them and that the Bible says that we're to submit to governing authorities and... Um, that I got vaccinated. And people are so mad at me about this. Why are they so angry? And I was feeling despondent and full of self-pity. And I asked Jesus, what's going on here? And he brought this verse, Matthew 5, to mind. And he's like, "Um, you think they're idiots? And I was like, well, they are idiots. And he's like, see? And they feel it. You're a threat to them. Because when you treat them with contempt, you're tempting other people to treat them with contempt in this community. And you can kill their place in this community. And they really value this community. This is their best friends. They've raised their kids together. You're just graceless. You don't have any grace for people who disagree with you. Because you're afraid. Right? And you like to be in control. That's really what's going on. And I was like, oh, God, this is terrible. This is terrible. And so maybe you have seen the same thing, right? Did COVID reveal this about you? I found myself needing to repent of fear and self-righteousness and contempt and unrighteous anger. God warns us that this relational posture is deadly, 1 John 3, 11 through 15. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Unlike Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. 
Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And you know no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Here's the other quote Jesus gave me as I was praying through this during COVID. Miroslav Volf, the spacious heart, he says this. This is the quote on the front of your bulletin. Forgiveness flounders because I exclude my enemy from the community of humans. And I exclude myself from the community of sinners. The problem, Mark, is you. So how do we solve our Cain problem? How do we move from death to life? Well, we begin by doing what Cain wouldn't do. We take a close look at our anger, and we ask ourselves, what does our anger reveal about our goals in life? Have I ever gotten so distant and cold in a relationship that I kill it off by withdrawing? Have I ever wished someone in my life would die or disappear? In the name of placing a boundary, have I actually created an insurmountable wall? Have I, have I cut people off from my life and called them toxic? They're no longer in the community of humans. They're a poison. I'm certainly not in the community of sinners. I'm a victim. Is anybody dead to me at work, at home, maybe even here at Hope? Have I ever murdered or participated in the murder of an unborn child? There's 700,000 of those a year. If so, then I'm a murderer in the eyes of God, and I need a Savior. Well, here's where this story gets really good. Think about how this first horizontal command... No murder landed with Moses. Because Moses began his decision to try to free the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt by murdering an Egyptian. Right? That's how his, that's how his story started. No murder. Moses is like, whoop. Okay, hang on. I got a murder problem. I got an anger problem. In fact, that's why Moses didn't get into the promised land, right? He got in the promised land because he got so mad, he struck the rock twice. When we looked at the life of Moses, we talked about Moses was just a thoroughly angry dude. And so Moses needed a savior. Well, where did he have to go for his solution? Well, he had to remember God's good news of the gospel that he declared in Genesis 3.15. I'll put hostility between, me, between you and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. What did Moses do with that promise? He said this at the end of his life, that's not me. That's not me. I'm not the Messiah. One greater than me is going to come. Well, when did that greater one show up, the one greater than Moses? Well, he showed up in the Garden of Gethsemane where Matthew tells us he did this in Matthew 26. They came up took hold of Jesus and arrested him. 
At that moment, one of those with Jesus reached out his hand, drew his sword, and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place because all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think I cannot call on my father and he will provide me here and now with more than 12 legions of angels? How then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? And then what did Jesus do? Well, he let us murder him. In the person of Jesus Christ, the God and creator and sustainer of all things made himself a victim of our murder. And we sing about this. We say, it was my sin which held him there. He allowed himself to be murdered so that you, a murderer, could be completely forgiven. And from that cross, he prayed for the people murdering him, saying, God, forgive them. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Which, when the Apostle Paul, while on his way to murder Christians, met Jesus and learned this firsthand, he later described that realization this way, Romans 5. But God proves his own love for us while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Only as we allow Jesus to forgive us for the murderous sins that held him on the cross will we receive from him the love to do likewise, to forgive our brothers and sisters when they don't give us what we want. 1 John 3, 16 through 18, this is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us love not in word or speech but in action and in truth. And again, the Apostle Paul in Romans 12 puts it this way, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give carefully, excuse me, give careful thought to what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it's written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing In so doing, you will heap fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Listen, Satan hates you. And so what he wants to do when you're mad is tempt you in self-righteous self-pity to be used by him to cancel someone else, to crush them with your tongue or with your coldness or with your actions. But God asks you this question, right? 
Why are you so furious? Why despondent? Won't you be accepted if you'll just humble yourself and admit that you need a Savior from your own murderous heart? And if you will, then Christ himself will pour out his love for your enemies, even when they're your brothers and sisters, in your heart. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to deliver us from ourselves. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would grant us the grace necessary uh, to believe that you are saying this to us today. Uh, help us to even resist the temptation right now to think, oh, so-and-so needs to hear this sermon. Lord, help us to, to not give in to that, to think that this word's for somebody other than us. Um, help us, Lord, to... Uh, ask these questions, to sit with these questions, that we might uh, be set free from the evil one who hates us and was a murderer and a liar from the beginning. We pray this in your name. Amen.